Hey, welcome back to Intimate Interactions. Let's get back to discussing the ways we share love and intimacy with our fellow humans. Relationships, kink, polyamory, group sex, it's time to unlearn stigma and live our best lives as our best selves. All thanks to my amazing Patreon supporters. Intimate Interactions has no ads but this one. If you want to keep it that way, you can go to patreon.com slash victorsalmon. You get access to exclusive premium content like all of my coping with jealousy stuff. And hey, if that makes you jealous of my patrons, it sounds like it might be time to sign up. Free resources are available at victorsalmon.com slash resources, and book recommendations are at intimatepodcast.com forward slash books. Also, my Patreon supporters don't have to listen to this ad. Now, let's talk about the episode. Race is a complicated topic to discuss because there are quite a few misconceptions out there. I want to tackle how white a lot of alternative spaces are because of how inhospitable they can be for people of color, often due to racism, particularly due to racism. However, in order to talk about any of those ideas, I have to talk about race first. So this episode is going to discuss what races are, how eugenics impacted ideas that we internalized and that may be alive in us today, and the supposed scientific basis of eugenics, along with um, what I think is a more interesting question, who gets to be white? Despite our best efforts, I think we both agreed that this episode centered whiteness far too much for our own liking, but it is my hope that it's a great episode for you to listen to if you are a white person or if you're looking for a more um, basic introduction around racism um, that is somewhat Eurocentric, I suppose. If you are dealing with alternative spaces like the polyamory community or the kink community, and of course this depends on city, there is hope. There are a lot of efforts being made to be less racist in those spaces. There's been a lot of focus on using words like inclusion and diversity, and I think ultimately those fall back on this idea that white people are choosing out of great kindness to include other kinds of people, or that there is an understanding that these spaces are lacking the participation of certain groups and that diversity is beneficial to those spaces, which it is. But all of this seems to center more of the white folks in the conversation. So I prefer using words like anti-oppression or anti-racism when I talk about efforts to make alternative spaces better represent the people from the cities in which those spaces exist and in which those events happen. I was like, okay. I mean, I guess it's just I delight in my identity. Sure. I'm like, haha, I'm a black Jew. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> I've typically just found you to be a sexy human. Meow. I have like weird feels about thinking about that in a racialized context because that hits a lot of like fetishy things for me that I'm like, that doesn't describe me. Right, but I can fetishize myself. Sure. I mean, consensual fetish, fetishization, I have no problem with, but I also like still feel weird about fetishizing folks, even with consent, just because it's like such a... I think it's a good habit to to not be in. I agree. It's more like a place to visit, mm-hmm. consensually, as you said, but like, yeah, if you're constantly filtering the world through that, yeah. you're basically just being racist. Yeah. Yeah, I don't really know how else to frame Pulling that. Pulling no punches on this episode, y'all. <laughs> Yeah, I guess we might as well start the session. I was originally going to do like an, an intro where we talked and then that like turned into us actually recording the session that was going to be recorded, but we've already brought up feti- fetishization. So mm-hmm. might as well just welcome people to Intimate Interactions. I'm here with Jazz. Hi, I'm Goldman. back. Goldman. <laughs> A black Jew. 
<laughs> who's going to be talking to us today about making white spaces safer for racial minorities. Can we talk about what a white space is first? Oh, boy. So I'm going to do my best not to be so snarky and broad that it's not a discussion. <laughs> so, you know, rein sure. me in. Sure, sure. But like a white space is just most often a default space. Yeah. Most spaces that we that I move through in the world as a person of color um, have been slash are white dominant. Yeah. Both like literally by people in the room and also culturally, socially by how the rooms function, function, interact, operate. Um, Do they, do they engage each other um, with facial expressions and body language and Mm -hmm. etiquette, specifically the word etiquette? Mm -hmm. How much are we centering white culture in dominant spaces that are actually like mixed spaces right. that have lots of people who maybe that isn't their first etiquette or wasn't their like mother culture. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. So talking about white spaces as spaces that are default spaces mm-hmm. that are essentially spaces where all of the dominant culture gets sort of imported, all of the etiquette and interactions standards. Or happening through the lens of white culture. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, that would include spaces like um, the Vancouver polyamory community feels very white to me. Mm -hmm. Um, But I should also remark that I haven't been out and open in that community in over a year. So for all I know, it's changed. Well, I mean, I hope so, but I would doubt. Yeah, I also have a lot of skepticism about that. I mean, the first thing I would ask is like, how many organizers of color are there in the Vancouver polyamory scene? Um, and the other thing besides you, right. (laughs) And I don't even identify as an organizer specifically in the polyamory scene. Um, like for me, I'm not monogamous. Sure. Um, I do love multiple people. So I would identify as polyamorous. If people are like, are you polyamorous? I would say yes. Non-hierarchically. So yes. Mm -hmm. Um, but I would feel very, like it was very important to stress that non-hierarchy piece. Um, because primarily I would identify, you know, to use hierarchy terms as a relationship anarchist. Hmm. Which to me is like if you take a lot of solo poly amory and just apply it to like all the things. Oh man, I mean, I didn't hear about the term relationship anarchy until I moved to the West Coast from New York, and the poly community in which I first interacted call themselves relationship anarchists, and like mm-hmm. there's actually a a group you can join. There is here too. Okay, so maybe they're sibling Quite organizations or whatever. I didn't know you identified as a relationship anarchist. I do too, but similar to how I don't like to actually call myself Polly, I don't actually call myself relationship anarchist because I'm too busy doing it instead of talking about it. Well, and people typically don't understand what it means, which is precisely why I use that, because it makes people clarify with me. Mm, that's a fun trick. If I say polyamorous, people are like, oh, I already know what that means. Mm-hmm. Right. People are always trying to clarify so much about me that they honestly can't handle that. I wouldn't ah. even take that strategy, but I, I get where you're coming from. That's very fair. Yeah. When you represent... I've given up in a lot of ways, so I just say what I feel like and what I am. Sure. And expect people to be confused. <laughs> right. <laughs> and hope that they'll ask. And, yeah. you know, in different contexts, I, of course, don't do that. But, like, mm-hmm. I have to also have some boundaries around letting people in to my life because I'm so open and so willing to just share Mm -hmm. that sometimes I think I develop those kinds of habits as a way to balance Mm -hmm. it out. So we talked about white spaces um, and we talked a little bit about fetishization, which I would consider um, 
a flag that a space is not not super safe mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to exist in as mm-hmm. as a racial minority. Can we talk a little bit about what it even means to be a racial minority? The definition of race. Oh, that's a juicy one. What it means to be a, a racial minority. I'm gonna do that because I think it's easier to answer first. Okay. Is um to live in a culture that deprioritizes you above another one, in this case, white culture. Right. So to have an ethnic, because when we talk about racial minorities, I feel like there's an implication of ethnicity and not race in that, even though it's called a racial minority. Like, I feel like, and this could, and this is actually a perfect question to ask, um, but on the topic of Jews as a race, it is something that you see a lot in Europe where they'll talk about Jews as a race of people, mm-hmm. whereas in North America, we tend to conceptualize, some of us tend to conceptualize Jews more as an ethnicity than as a strict race. Mm-hmm. I would say officially that's still true. Um, like, uh, technically, people will just say, yeah, Jews are not a race of people. Mm-hmm. Um my lived experience is that it's functionally the opposite. Right. It's just that, yeah, I mean, it's functionally the opposite because mm-hmm. the religion of Judaism, as I have experienced it, and I'm pretty fucking secular, just to be clear, sure. but the Jewish religion encompasses enough of the things mm-hmm. that in other peoples we call it race. Related behavior. And there's also people who are ethnically Jewish as well. Yeah. Which is, I think, more of where the argument of Jews as a race comes from, is that there are people who are ethnically Jewish. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So for me, if we're talking about Jews and, like, my life experience as a Jew, I consider it a race. Sure. Um, And I don't need to argue with other people who feel differently. They can feel differently about it, and I don't need to change their minds. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great answer. (laughs) Yeah. um, It's very interesting because I had that experience at West Coast Bound where someone was arguing that Irish people um, were a race, functionally. And a Um, racial minority, right? Yeah, specifically. They should count as people of color. And this argument came about... Yeah, exactly. So this argument came about, and the justification was... um, that ethnic slurs get used all the time, you know, to beat someone like a redheaded stepchild, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, soulless ginger, as you get all these like really offensive ethnic slurs that are based on people who are ethnically from um, Ireland, mm-hmm. obviously. <laughs> um, but the the thing that I found so interesting about the conversation is if you go the route of saying, well, we're gonna we're gonna cling to this original five races racist idea of arbitrarily typing humans as either white, black, red, yellow, or brown, that eliminates things like Jewish people as a race. And it eliminates things, which is really unfair because when you think of how quote unquote Arabs are handled as a general topic in the United States Mm -hmm. or how quote unquote Hispanics are handled in um, the United States, by which they never mean people who are Spanish speaking from Spain, which to me is ridiculous because that's what Hispanic means. Like, it means someone who speaks Spanish specifically, not necessarily from Spain. Right. Um, Like, if anything, you'd think it would be, like, on government census Mm -hmm. forms, they would be talking about, you know, do you identify as a Latin American? Like, Mm -hmm. that, to me, would make way more sense. Uh But they have, like, non-white Hispanic in the U.S., Mm -hmm. which is Mm -hmm. the way that they they refer to it. Well, you're 
which sort I guess of bringing which up um, I guess is again, eugenics, right? Because the origins for many, if not most, of the distinctions you just brought up mm-hmm. are a direct result of the eugenics experiment, shall we call it? I mean, it's not a science. It's certainly we not a that. science. Well, and I mean, even if we're talking Blunder. about blunder, <laughs> well, or even just like I don't know. Yeah, I I don't know what to even call eugenics other than bigotry. But it's where it where modern delineations of race came from. Right. But I, I would almost even argue that. I would say they just came from white supremacy. Because to even justify it by saying, like, the divisions of race were inherently about eugenics, like, I mean, I don't, um, I don't know Maybe I should clarify were. the labels. Right. The words that we use, which yeah. are a big part of all of this, how right. we categorize and the specific words do right. come directly from the eugenics. I didn't realize that. That's good Yeah, like the reason why we think of, um, yeah, non-white, that's, that's literally an attempt by the legacy of eugenics to subsume as many people right. as possible into whiteness. That's right. what that's about. Well, and I think to some extent as well, anyone who had a role in... And this is more conjecture on my part, but I, I very much feel like anyone who had a role in crafting um, really intelligent systems also became white. Like a lot of yes. Arabic number systems and math systems, the very word algorithm coming yeah. originally from Arabic. Yeah, that's true of Arabic culture, Indian culture, and quote unquote Egyptian culture. Right. Which is African. <laughs> yes. Some African culture is not black, yeah. according to a white European society. Because they couldn't handle where the knowledge came from. Well, and there's an interesting distinction here as well between like what white means to Europeans versus what white means to Americans. Because mm. in Europe, I think white very much refers to Christendom. It refers to Catholic Europe. And even the word Europe refers specifically to Catholic parts. Yeah. Which is like a leap for a lot of people, but Mm. England, which was Protestant, doesn't typically consider itself super European. It considers itself a separate thing a lot of the time, even though in America... It's like it gets to be European when when they want, but they're really British. Like, that's really what it is. First and foremost, they're separate from the landmass of Europe. They're separate from the religion and culture of Europe. Mm -hmm. They'll, like, distantly dip a toe in as, like, a a grudging sibling almost, but it it very much feels like... And and I think a lot of that distinction as to where Europe is ends and Asia begins because there's no good argument for why Europe is considered a separate thing other than Catholicism. Mm. There's no difference Mm. in tectonic plates. There's no mountain range. There's no specific thing other than the Western Roman Empire ended here and had this flavor, Catholicism, and the Eastern Roman Empire ended here and had this flavor of, of Orthodox Christianity. And that whole line between Europe and Asia that's like Orthodox Christian states is all like former, I think, descended from Eastern Roman Empire. Yep. I mean, you can fact check it all you want. I'm pretty sure that's fairly accurate. But I think you're right. I'm just, I'm just sort of also tripping off of the idea of like, why would we even talk about this if we're talking about white spaces? Right. Right. And right, because it's very white centering. No, no, because this is this is part of parsing it out. Is, mm. is actually what I meant. Like, oh, okay, understanding the legacy of the names mm. of the races, understanding mm-hmm. the legacy of large land masses being considered a group or not being considered a group, like yeah. all of that. Yeah, it it, it brings us to this day Definitely. in a real way, not just like a theoretical, cool history project way. Right. And it's, it is significant. The legacy like then, is significant. Because then, you know, you have incidences where 
someone is Irish and thinking that they belong in the, the POC only space. Right. And there's there's a complex history that brings us to that moment, even right. though like I, that's and I, super not like please don't. So it's through the <laughs> it's through the lens of not being part of dominant Christian Europe was what I was getting to. Okay. So the the notion that Italians who were referred to by slurs of essentially being um, black. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the slurs that Italians got from other Europeans were essentially you're black. Mm-hmm. That was the worst slur you could use on an Italian. Right. You're from Africa. Yep. Yep. Um, and and with the Irish, I don't even I don't even know. With the I feel like I don't even know. I feel what like the it's really important be. to talk about Irish culture when we're talking about race and discrimination. Sure. But just well, because we're talking a, about a lot of like paganism too and Celtic roots and all the cultures that mm, were highly oppressed by like Britain specifically. Mm-hmm. So there is very much an oppressor oppressed relationship. There yes. is that colonial relationship. Yes. So like I totally get what extended into the Americas. Sure. In a very absolutely tangible way. Definitely. Like that happened, but. Mm-hmm. It's not the same. No. <laughs> it's not the same as other people of color. Right. Irish people are not people of color. No. They are um, white. They are definitely They're, discriminated they against. They pagan, sure. you know, but roots, can... and they are massively discriminated against still. Right. Like, and... not in the past. Right. Like, still, there are a host of awful caricatures and stereotypes definitely. that they have, the people I of mean, that St. ancestry. I mean, Day, if nothing else. Good Lord. Yeah. Yeah. So when you think about it, like they're an ethnicity that has to deal with a lot of bullshit for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Does that make them a racial minority that should take up space of of people who qualify under a also racist definition of what? Of brown and black people. Basically, yes. And this is, I mean, it's where like, do we include Jews also? Right. And that's that's where we run into these issues mm-hmm. is like when you run into these um, groups of humans that are ethnicities typically, but also they're racialized in certain contexts mm-hmm. where they're absolutely treated as any other race would be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a big challenge. I think my, my personal answer for why yes mm-hmm. has to do with the state of the world today. Sure. And if the Irish were in similarly violent dynamics that Jews are to this day, then I would say, please come along. Because to me, the only reason why I don't want someone like that around is because I don't believe they have the same shared experience Mm -hmm. to an extent that they should be in that kind of a um, uh, uh, exclusive space. Caucus space. Yes. Because I don't even think of it as exclusive so much. It's not like there's an Caucus is the word I wish I had, so thanks. Yeah, that's okay. Um, But you brought up a really good point that a lot of people do refer to caucus spaces as as being exclusive of white folks. Mm -hmm. They're just exclusive spaces. They are for some people and not for others. Totally. In the the same way that the Senate or the Congress are very exclusive spaces. In the same way that universities are very exclusive spaces. In the Mm -hmm. same way that your your kid's playground or, or... um, elementary school class is an exclusive space. Yes. yes. Um, it's, you know, they can be exclusive by age or exclusive by money or exclusive by education or exclusive by political connection. Um, and in this case, they're exclusive by the lived experience of being highly discriminated against. And typically in a lot of these caucus spaces where we try and get folks together who have shared experience of specific things, um, in this case, talking about capital R racism um, and taking a quick tangent from what I was just saying. Um, 
it is significant that we talk about capital R racism versus lowercase r, because a lot of people will talk about racism as anything that distinguishes or discerns or discriminates mm -hmm. based on the color of someone's skin. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very bad definition. It's a definition that's a lay definition. It's, it's how not people deep talk. deep enough. Right. And we can talk about that almost as like lowercase r, mm -hmm. like a lay definition of racism that doesn't mm -hmm. address like systematized oppression. It's like talking about sexism, but not about patriarchy in a way. I guess so. I mean, like it's you can like, try, you can give a broad sort of definition about sexism, and sure. discrimination based on gender or sex or whatever, and that's yeah. not descriptive enough. Right. The same way that like just saying racism is right. Mm. Um, it it doesn't hold space for the power dynamic. Like that's that's what mm -hmm. we're missing in those definitions. Mm -hmm. Is there's a power dynamic that's underlying that category of person. Right. Like when you talked about the patriarchy, that's that sort of shook that loose for me that we're, yeah. we're, what we're talking about isn't just discrimination against people based on sex or gender. It's like discrimination based on sex or gender with this whole history of oppression and with the fact that society is set up in such a way, even gender itself is like hegemonically constructed yeah. to put certain traits that are advantageous into one camp and not into another yeah, and that's why talking about race and patriarchy are so vital for liberation. Because Interesting. Yeah, we have to unpack the power that's happening there and the the selection of the good attributes that go to some and not right. to others. Like, like that's the common thing. Advocating for yourself is that a feminine or masculine trait? Right. We already know it's not feminine. Right. And women are not just penalized by other women to talk about this in binary terms. Yeah. Um, they're. Oh, sorry, they're not just penalized by men, they're also penalized by other women. So if a woman is advocating for herself, it's seen as typically, in Canada at least, if not in the US as well, as a very unfeminine thing to do and typically as like a very selfish or greedy thing in a way that's highly penalized in a way it never would be for a man. Yeah, I mean, men aren't selfish or greedy. They are... Driven, goal-oriented. Uh-huh. Right. Uh -huh. Even aggressive. Even the word aggressive in certain business contexts is seen as like, oh, that's good. I can yeah. rely on this person in a crisis. He aggressively pursues the sale. Right. You know, that's a good thing. Think about an aggressive woman in that same company. What are what are her advancements? <laughs> she aggressively process? advocates for a pay raise. What a bitch! You know, like yeah. that's what happens there. That's what happens. Yeah. <laughs> so what we're talking about is the power underlying discrimination. So when we talk about race, we're talking about the power that underlies that discrimination. Like I could not that I would, but I mean, you could come up with all kinds of discriminatory things you could say about, oh, white people do this and et cetera, et cetera. And at the end of the day, you know, they're not going to get beaten up by a police officer. They're not going to get questioned in a job interview the same way. Like mm -hmm. the real ways that, that the real power that dominant cultures have over minority groups is still there. Yeah. And that's what makes lowercase r racism, quote unquote, against white people, not the same as uppercase R racism that is a systematized oppressive force against this arbitrary classification of humans that fundamentally came from a highly racist platform or ideology, which you mentioned was from eugenics. Yeah. Yeah. The way we talk about it and the words we use in modernity Are come from... out of that. Yeah. 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 I mean, I can definitely speak to why eugenics isn't a science. I mean, there are a lot well, of reasons. Well, it was reasons. debunked even as it was happening by other peers. Of course. Well, it's just, <laughs> it's, it's so highly unscientific to say a species is better off with fewer genes. Like, yes. That's just so obviously <laughs> ignorant to me. Like a species is only as strong as its entire gene pool. 
Like when you look at when you look at a species dealing with any kind of struggle, the more radical traits you have in that species, the more amazing variety of variation you have, the better prepared for catastrophe you are. There have been case studies with butterflies. Black butterflies used to get eaten super, super easily and typically still do um, by birds because, you know, they can see them really easily. Whereas a lot of the colored butterflies huh, are going to, hey. um, right, are going to blend in a lot more with, say, um, in certain environments, flowers. I'm, I'm kind of butchering this example and using a very generic one, but it's meant for illustrative purposes only, not as a specific case study, although I believe it was at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a specific case study where a coal plant um, exploded. It had an explosion and it tossed a whole bunch of coal dust into the air. Um, so when that settled on all the leaves, all of the butterflies that were bright colors that used to match flowers all got eaten by the birds. Um, and only the ones that were black survived, even though they still carried some of the other genes with them. Mm-hmm. So what ended up happening was a lots and lots and lots of black butterflies had the same amount of food to compete for. And there was an explosion in population. We're talking within the same species here, yeah. not competing butterflies of different species, mm-hmm. but the same butterfly with different alleles for color. So when conditions change, you can find that what seems like a really competitive or dominant strategy isn't anymore. And having that variation is what helps get you through. Mm-hmm. For us, that's not likely going to look like an explosion of coal. It's mm-hmm. probably going to look more like, oh, there's this horrific form of cancer that some people are immune to. Let's study their genes because this is really important to a lot of people not dying. I mean, there I've heard that there was some interest in doing that with HIV. Yes, yes, they there was. found that, I think this is a true fact, but we should check it. But As opposed believe, to those alternative facts. I believe that they found a link of some sort between descendants who survived the plague and hmm. people who didn't contract HIV, even though their risk patterns were comparable to other people that did. Um, so, yeah, I agree with you that it, it won't it, it won't look like a coal explosion it'll look like probably something related to disease resistance definitely that's that's how i think about it anyway because again ultimately like you know you get a whole bunch of ableist arguments too about like should we really let people that have blah blah uh-huh. blah blah reproduce uh-huh. and it's like yes definitely and i hope that there is some generation of new genetic material like People are like, well, but what if in a crisis those people wouldn't be able to support themselves? I'm like, yes, we have a much more advanced society now that can allow for these explorations of genetic diversity that we wouldn't previously have been able to do. And that fundamentally is a resource to all of humanity to do do disease research, to do any kind of research on, on genes. Like the fact that we have this variation is not in any way dragging down the gene pool or, or being a, a resi- you know, like it's not like that at all. Mm-hmm. Like when mm-hmm. you look at the actual science of it, this diversity is an enormous resource. Yeah. I mean, it's almost as if humans were designed to intermingle to survive. Cough, cough. I mean, <laughs> like it's almost as if you're saying that right. mixed and black and brown people are the genetic future of the of our race and i I mean i wouldn't go that far (laughs) because that again is talking about certain traits as being paramount over others um i think it's but brownness is such a big category couldn't couldn't it slide uh in it's adorable um it's not specific i mean you could say when you say brownness you could say that as like brown and mixed all of those things sure I mean, you don't have to say yes. I was mostly just enjoying saying that out loud because I think it's funny. Not a, it's funny, and I also think it's not a horrible thing to hear. Sure. Like even if it's 
ends up being scientifically sure. untrue. Sure. I kind of think it's good to talk about the possibility that black and brown people are the savior of this planet. I think genetically at, speaking. I think at the at, see there are some advantages because you're talking specifically about skin color. Skin color is a well. You are. I I wasn't. You were talking simply about race. Yeah. Okay. But go ahead, talk about skin color. I think I know where you're going. Oh, I was going to go the whole polygenic inheritance route we talk about. I think it's like, it's more than six, I think. But there, there are multiple Oh, that it's genes. not as much of a marker as we attribute things well, to? Well, so all genes are inherited separately, which means you don't inherit all of the genes, like, together as a lump, usually. You inherit them in chunks. Mm -hmm. And those chunks are completely intermingleable. They in no way... So, like, especially if you have mixed heritage, you can have very, 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 very black, quote-unquote, traits um, in some areas and very, very, very not black traits in other areas, yes. as you would likely be a living example of this. Yes, that's true. Right? Because when you're having that... And that... the fact that I have a brother actually illustrates it well. If you look at the two of us, we look like siblings, very mm -hmm. much like mm -hmm. we are direct siblings. We look different from each other. Right. We don't have identical features and hair type and mm -hmm. body type even because mm -hmm. the mix is always random yeah to Ooh. a large that's absolutely <laughs> i tend to i tend mix to mix is always random <laughs> sorry i tend to i tend to use the word stochastic which is just a fancy academic classist elitist term but basically, for randomness well yes because it's talking about randomness that is mathematically modelable if i'm not mistaken stochastic stochastic as in as in things like radiation would be like a stochastic phenomenon. It's not totally random. You can predict how much they'll be based on the substance you have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? There's like, there's a randomness element to it, but it's ultimately predictable. And I think um, sexual inheritance would be seen the same way. You can model it with a very good, very accurate over large sample sizes, like over right. large numbers. Right. Okay. Yeah. What was your degree in again? Cellular, molecular, and microbial biology. Mm. Honestly, I mostly just like hearing you say that. You're adorable. Um, honestly, it's more of like a micro degree or like, uh, uh, yeah, it's more of a microbiology degree Are you than anything. minimizing your own degree in a micro thing? I mean, yes. And I also feel like my institution made it sound like cooler than it was by listing all the individual components instead of just calling it like a shorter name for the same ish thing. Which, which you would say is what? I think I think it's more of a microbiology degree. Okay. They they characterize the major as cellular, molecular, and microbial biology. So it's because I have like I think a very focused micro degree uh -huh. that specifically investigates those three things. Okay. Not not that other micro degrees don't. Anyways, the point was it sounds like a mouthful, but it's just a biology degree really with some with a lot of high level core courses that I wish were electives. <laughs> Um, I, I, at one point I made fun of someone cause I used to be a lot more elitist about academia cause academia. Um, but I made fun of someone who's doing a general biology degree as being the literal arts degree of the sciences, because all he was doing was taking tons and tons of electives. And he was like, so scandalized by the fact that I just characterized his whole degree as basically like the arts degree of mm -hmm. the sciences, because that's how shitty academia is. We don't value each other. It's true. It's it's why I stayed away from the sciences. There's a hierarchy. I struggled with math and I didn't want to engage in the elitism that was built into it. I just went for the artistic elitism, you know. Right. I'm not pointing fingers at anyone in science who goes down that route. Sure, I just sure. like, I, I felt it and caught it and I was like, I can't handle this. And so I just 
shied away, even though I think I have more of an inclination for science than I've ever explored. Yeah. And honestly, I think math, so much of it is practice. Like so much of it is practice. And how you're being taught. Definitely. Yeah. I, my issues were less with math itself and that I was never taught in a way that I could get enough of the concepts at one time to do Mm -hmm. whatever math was being asked of me. Well, Mm -hmm. I was always behind or missing a piece so I couldn't do the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And that's like ineffective teaching because I was Mm -hmm. doing the homework and taking the tests, you know? Yeah, Yeah, definitely. There's sometimes even having tutors. There's a lot of ineffective teaching and there's a lot of teaching that's very effective for some and ineffective for others. So like a lot of it is also just like a style thing, I think. Anyway. Getting back on the topic of race. You know, honestly, talking about eugenics as like a debunked science almost bothers me because it was never scientific, but... Mm. You're right that it does follow that narrative historically, mm-hmm. um, which is very upsetting. Um, you're right. It never was a science. That's very well, there's much nothing, true. There's nothing scientific about it unless you're going to say that heterozygote advantage is scientifically somewhat preferable and therefore mixed race folks are the uber race. You could theoretically conceptualize eugenics as saying anyone who's purebred in anything is fundamentally inferior to people who aren't. But that's also a super shitty bigoted approach because it's not like people, you know, choose being purebred or not. And they still carry very important alleles for the species because they carry a lot of recessive alleles that are being expressed even when those recessive alleles may at some level not seem like desirable characteristics, we need those purebred elements in society in the same way that butterflies of that species needed black butterflies that were typically selected against. Typically, the, in, in that example, the black butterfly, that coloration would be a recessive allele, and you would only get black butterflies where wing color was like a, a homozygous recessive trait. So that means both of your parents gave you a gene for black wings as a butterfly, and you're like, great, I'm probably going to die young. I I want to amend what I said though mm-hmm. in terms of like the savior stuff. The savior stuff go on. Because I didn't I think our conceptions of saviors and like good versus bad racially speaking are right. are just already warped by eugenics and by sure. racism. Sure. What I think I was trying to say is that Yeah, savior doesn't mean to me literally that the genetic material of black and brown people is superior. Okay. What it means is that by nature we're creating a global advantage of survival. Sure. And that's not necessarily about genetics. It could be about... Like culture of surviving. Yeah. Things or... like the Holocaust or things like slavery. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. that kind of resilience. Which has genetic component, an epigenetic component, but not just. Sure. Um, what else am I trying to say in that? It's, that, yeah. that was a very accurate reframing. It does have epigenetic characteristics for sure. Yeah. And that's something a lot of the time people will say is genetic. And for any lay conversation, I would have just accepted it at face value. Mm-hmm. But because you brought up the distinction, I wanted to mention that epigenetics is more the regulation of genetics, not so much the genetic coding itself. It's the coding of how those genes are expressed, just yeah. for folks that are following along. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my layperson understanding of epigenetics it includes this idea that, like, there are things waiting to be turned on or off. Huh. And that, it, that's, I think that's where the word expressed comes in. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like, yeah. 
yeah, epigenetics is sort of the system by which over many generations your genetic material decides to express or not express itself. Sure. It used the environmental concerns, and a lot yeah. of that gets translated in utero. Yeah. Which is super neat. Yeah, it is super neat. Somebody explained the idea that, like, y like your genetic material rests within your great-grandmother or something, like, basically the way of... There's some really cool experiments, by which I mean um, data that were collected by farmers in Scandinavia. And mm -hmm. it was like, they go back so far. Um, because especially when you're in like a northern climate, like it's always valuable for farmers to keep records. Yeah. But if you're in the kind of climate where there might be regular famines, keeping records is super valuable, mm. um, which isn't just northern climates. Anyways, um, they had kept records, at least I believe it was Scandinavia. And it turned out that if your grandparents had gone through a famine, like you were more likely to be resilient to certain things and have a slightly longer life expectancy. Yeah. And because they kept so much data, I believe it was statistically significant. Mm -hmm. And that's something you won't hear in a lot of late conversations, whether or not something's significant. Yeah. Because yeah. the meaning of the word significant is very specific and academic. Yes. In this case, it means, is there actually a relationship? So the thing with statistics is you can say... Um, you know, correlationally, you can say like 100% of serial killers had a glass of water in the last, you know, in the 48 hours prior to their committing, you know, their first murder. Right. And that doesn't mean there's a relationship between water and serial killers. Mm -hmm. However, sometimes a number that is like, even, even relatively not that, that nuts when you're talking about incarceration rates of certain people by race, for example, mm -hmm. um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but if you look at indigenous incarceration in Canada, it's bad. Yeah. Um, Not and, relative to the actual population of indigenous people. Well, and that's the thing. Mm -hmm. So there are all these statistical tests you can do to say, this is what the actual population of indigenous folks is. And this is what the population and representation of indigenous folks is in custody. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What is the likelihood that there is some relationship Right. That doesn't necessarily mean that that relationship is that people are being arrested because they're indigenous, but it could be something correlated with that. Like maybe people are getting arrested because they're forced onto reserves mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. they have a history of genocide or et cetera, being et cetera. profiled at a higher rate. Absolutely. There, and then that is absolutely one of the options. And right. I would typically point at that option sure. a lot. And in terms of like statistically significant and what the actual numbers mean, they mean there is a relationship and indigenous folks are being jailed and like to a, a statistically significant amount more than other people in society. The actual specific reasons behind it are less clear cut, but I think when you look at a lot of the cultural context, it's pretty easy to understand it's racism, in my opinion. Yeah, 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 I mean... But there's a line between like the hard science and, and the soft science. There's a line between like, this is what the math says, absolutely this is a statistically significant relationship, and then there's all of the like... Um, all of the social sciences mm -hmm. they're talking about here are all the reasonings behind why it's racism mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. i'm just drawing like a distinction between those two different um and complementary schools of thought yeah yeah and i'm thinking about now a thing we've talked a lot about in this so far is very um science and sort of western european oriented like our question was about safe spaces for black people right. and brown people. And what we've ended up talking about is is connected very much. Yeah. But I just find it significant <laughs> that um, 
that, yeah, we're approaching the conversation in this way. It's partly our personalities and whatnot. Yeah. Like, I'm not upset about it, but I think it's noteworthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sorry, specifically in which way? Well... Because I'm trying to circle around through all the definitions before we get into actually talking about the material. Mm. Uh, but I do understand. Like, was was you're gonna have to repeat it for me again. I kind of went somewhere else. What was the specific criticism? It not uh, not criticism, just like noticing oh, yeah. that the way in which we're even approaching a racialized conversation is highly intellectualized and scientific. Right. And that is Eurocentric Definitely. and white. Um, yeah. in nature. So like we're answering our own questions in meta ways by having this conversation you would be like surprised this. at how brown it is if you're talking about India. Part of that may be British cultural influence on India, mm-hmm. but I think India's always had a long standing tradition of science that predates the Greek tradition of science. Yes. I, and, yes. and and that's not to reduce the significance of the way that Greek traditions of science changed and iterated on Indian traditions of science. I mean, there could be a whole fun podcast conversation about OG science and math versus Eurocentric sure. science and math. Right. When you which look is at... just appropriative hacked. Right. Right. Versions of, like, of, that's kind of what you just said. You're like, the especially... Greeks took the Indian knowledge and turned it into something else. Sure. Or, like, didn't I mean, get things right and created their own system, even whatever. The, even the Four Humors is so obviously Ayurveda, just totally ripped off. It's <laughs> it's just a poor man's Ayurveda. <laughs> Plain and simple. Like, oh, Greek, that's so good. Greek humors are not, in any way, in my opinion, superior to Ayurveda. And they don't offer anything really new or significant. I mean, I think the closest thing to significance that came out of that that swap would have been things like, at least from a Western perspective, we tend to think of the Greeks with like the Hippocratic Oath and things, which are really just codified versions of what a lot of physicians presumably were already working from. Right. That's just my ignorant assumption, though. So I don't actually have proof of that. I just think very much that the Hippocratic Oath is likely to be a codification of something that was just innate in a lot of healers. Yeah, I like that you brought up the legacy of science predates the Western Definitely. notions of it because that's so freaking accurate and mm-hmm. and it's a nicer way to talk about science. I prefer talking about science coming from those perspectives. There's also a lot of indigenous perspectives as well that typically sure. get written off and typically don't get talked about. I mean, the closest Well, they get thing... written off a lot because some of it is oral tradition. Like, it just sure. wasn't recorded in the same ways that it was in ancient China and India. But there were ways that were recorded in Central America and, yes. like, Mesoamerica. Like, when yes. we start talking You're right. about... You're right. You talk about a lot of written traditions there, and we're talking about, like, a lot of advanced science that was doing a lot of... Um, understanding the movements of celestial objects to, Mm -hmm. in my opinion, better understand farming. It's always about farming Mm. because it's always about food and about the success of a civilization. You know, like people... Why we got to listen to brown people because we're going to fuck up our food sources if we haven't already done it irreparably. Oh, we have definitely fucked up our food sources. We've just fucked them up 10 or 15 years hence, if not already. Like, I honestly think like with water scarcity... We we don't fully understand the scope of the problem because of the way that cause and effect are so temporarily disconnected. And just looking at tensions between even India and Pakistan, to use an example I'm more familiar with, yeah, it, it just like that is a scary conflict to come. And more to the point, a lot of poor people are going to starve to death because of gross negligence from leadership mm-hmm. and very powerful lobby. But that's why there are... Middle schoolers now protesting the government. That's why there's that girl in Sweden who's oh, yeah? 
Oh my God. Yeah. Please put that in the show notes, but she's, I think she's under 14 and she's been making these amazing speeches about the environment and about basically like just calling out the government on, on how this is, this is an issue that they can't ignore and they can't you know, leave the world to, to her right. and her generation and us. <laughs> like she's fighting for us too. <laughs> like... Right. Well, that's, that's what I find so interesting about a lot of these conversations about race is when we start talking about issues that are not exclusively white issues. Um, like, yeah, like food, food scarcity, water scarcity. These are things that are not going to affect the richest people on the planet. Like plain and simple. If, if the corn I go to buy costs me 20 cents or $2 for one year of corn, that's not going to significantly impact my budget. And it's a tenfold increase. Right. Like if all of my food cost me 10 times as much as it cost me now, it would be very expensive. I probably wouldn't be able to afford it. Certainly not on an IBS budget. Certainly not eating meat because I have to. Mm -hmm. um, and I say that because I'm low FODMAP. But if you look at people who spend 20% of their income on food or 30% of their income on food or more, there are people in the world that live off of $2 a day. Right. Right. And in India, a lot of people live off of $2 a day. Mm -hmm. It would not shock me if that number were like in the hundreds of millions of people. Right. So when you think about those hundreds of millions of people living off of $2 a day, predominantly they're spending their money on things like rice. If there is water scarcity in that part of the world, we are not going to be growing as much rice. If we don't grow as much. We're able to cook as much of it. Sure. Even if it's Fuel. there, right? Like you need water for cooking and food production. There's also a desert belt that runs through part of India as well. And if those deserts start expanding north and south then you start getting less and less arable farmland and less and less habitable space or habitable space that's more expensive to occupy. And these are just like problems we understand are happening, mm -hmm. right? People will, will red herring argue with you about whether or not humans caused it. That's not fucking significant. What's significant is can humans do anything about it? And I mm. think there's no mm. question we can, we just aren't. Yeah. And we are in some, we are in some ways. And we, we have to have these conversations in and figure out what is wrong in spaces that are not safe for black and brown people mm -hmm. in order to have any shot at combating things like this. Because the through line in everything we're talking about is the white dominance of the world that we're in. And if we want to have equity around food and water, we can't get there if we can't have equity in a space with 30 people where right. 17 to 25 of them are, are white, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really frustrating for me living in Vancouver specifically where the demographics are about 50% white. And if you were to go to a kink party, you'd be surprised if it were 10% not, yeah. not white. Yeah. And it's like when I see that as an organizer, I'm like this, you know, looking at it, I'm one of very few organizers of color. Like there may be like two other organizers of color I can think of. Um, three, maybe, if you include people who do, like, professional anti-oppression work, mm -hmm. um, organizing those. But, like, yeah, when I think about in the BDSM space, people doing organizing, I think I might be literally the only person of color, and I'm a light-skinned mixed-race person. And that is not the makeup of the majority of the city. Right. So it just, it just feels really, really frustrating to see so much not represented and there are good reasons why it's not represented, which we will have to get into next time. As I know. We, we didn't even talk about white adjacency. 
Oh my God, because there's so many things to talk about. Especially with our light-skinnedness. Oh, like definitely. That's a really important component for the fact that we feel safe anywhere. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> All right, well, we will... What did we even talk about this time? We talked a lot about the definitions of race and eugenics. That's what we talked about. Yeah. Yeah, this has to be a two-parter, I think. I think so, too. All There's right. just so much to unpack. Well, that is fair. We will have to talk about more next time. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Thanks for having me. So how did you like it, Intimates? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash intimateinteractions or directly on patreon.com slash victorsalmon. Both communities are easy to find from intimatepodcast.com. So what are you waiting for? Go join the free Intimates community and start connecting with others. I'll see you on there. Disclaimer. I apologize if I said something that hit a nerve or played off a hateful idea or stereotype. I'm open to being called in. Chances are, in six months, I'll look back aghast and see something problematic I've since grown from. I'm certainly not perfect, but I am trying to be mindful of the voices I lift up and the perspectives I encourage. You can email feedback to podcast at victorsalmon.com. Thanks for your kindness. Attribution. The tracks I use are published under the Creative Commons Attribution License. The intro track was Lost Souls by Portrayal, and the outro track was Restoration by Uncle Milk. Land Acknowledgement I apologize first for any pronunciations I might butcher. I wanted to acknowledge that I recorded this podcast on the unceded traditional Coast Salish territories of the Musqueam, Kwantlen, Stazuminus, Stolo, Sawasan, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Shout out to the Sekwepmek Nation, on whose land I got my degree, considering the Kamloops Indian Residential School closed only in 1996 when I was 10, I have found nothing but unending patience and kindness in the Tekemlupste Sikwepmek folks with whom I've interacted. Let's never forget genocide in the hope we don't make the same dehumanizing, cruel mistakes again. Thank you.